Red-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Pulitzer Prize-winning author Thomas Ricks, and I've been a fan of his print journalism and his books, actually, for geez, a, a number of years now, and so I'm fairly, really pleased to have the opportunity to talk with him today about his most recent book, First Principles, What America's Founders Learned from the Greeks and Romans and How That Shaped Our Country. Thomas Ricks, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. So I thought we would start with the genesis of this book. And a lot of authors don't know exactly when the idea came to them, but you're a little different here because you actually point out a specific day that it came to you, on November 9th, 2016. So let's start. Tell, tell us a little bit about what was going through your head that Wednesday morning and how it led to this book. I woke up that morning. It was a gray day here in my house, I remember. Gray day outside. And I thought, oh, my God, that's right. Donald Trump got elected president last night. How could that happen? And I thought, Tom, you don't understand this country. You know, you need to sit down and do some studying. You need to think seriously about politics, about this country, about how it got to where it is now. And I thought, in those sort of situations, begin at the beginning. And so if you're thinking about politics, the place to begin, or at least one good place to begin, was Aristotle's politics. So I went into my library, took it down off the shelf, began reading Aristotle, and that led me through various other Greek philosophers, and it led me to some history, it led me to Polybius, uh, a, an ancient writer who deeply influenced John Adams and the other founders. It led me into a four-year study of how the people who designed this country came to design it, what they learned, what they thought about politics, and how they applied that in writing the Declaration of Independence and then the Constitution, how they interpreted it, and then what happened over the last couple of hundred years to those things. So, for example, the reason we have an electoral college is because the ancient Greeks, in their leagues between cities, um, decided that both big cities and small cities should have the same number of votes. And so the people writing the Constitution looking at the big states and small states, said, we'll make it equal, we'll be like the ancient Greeks. Both the big states, in their case Virginia, and the small states, in this case Delaware, will have the same number of votes in the Electoral College, too, plus the number of, of votes they have in the House of Representatives, the number of representatives. They have. That's just one example. And the more I read, the more it really stunned me how much Ancient Greece and ancient Rome influenced the design of this country, their political vocabulary, how they thought about problems, even the very names of our parties. The word Democrat comes from the Greek. The word Republic or Republican comes from the Latin of the Romans. The Supreme Court across the street from the capital, the capital being another word that comes from ancient Rome, the Supreme Court is designed to look like a temple across Washington at the other end of the Washington Mall is 
the Lincoln Memorial, which is a kind of redesign of the Parthenon of Athens. And again and again, there is Rome and Greece all around us, though we tend not to see it. Take a dollar bill out of your wallet. There is Latin all over it. Yeah, that's really interesting. First off, I think, in fact, I know you are the only person I've ever talked to about the 2016 election whose uh, first reaction was uh, Aristotle. That's uh, that's a new one for me, actually. But uh, also, I, I had no idea, for instance, about. I mean, I knew about I knew about some of, and I think most of us know about some of the classical uh, references. But things like the uh, the Senate composition and how that carries over to the Electoral College, I had no idea about that there being that kind of relationship to the ancient world as you talked about, and and so many other things. I guess because, like a lot of people. To the extent that I think about the founding principles of the United States, and I probably think about them maybe a little bit more than some people as a political scientist, the first people who come to mind for me are, well, I guess Enlightenment thinkers. John Locke is almost always the first name I think of. And so I think it was an interesting choice that you made to not look to the Enlightenment, kind of the close contemporaries of these uh, of of the founders in fact some of them living at that very time but going back so much further and so i was wondering what i mean obviously you, you talk about john locke and enlightenment thinkers so why not focus on them as opposed to going so far back well that's a good question and the answer is because that's who they looked to they didn't look to locke that's actually kind of a mistake i think in American historiography made by Carl Becker in the early 20th century and repeated endlessly. Uh, fortunately, today, we can actually measure these things. There's this wonderful archive, Founders Online. Every single word these guys spoke, wrote, in books and speeches and pamphlets and letters to each other, every single word is archived and searchable. So if you go on there and search on John Locke, you'll find a lot of references. But guess what? you'll find twice as many references to the French thinker, Montesquieu. And yes, Montesquieu, great Enlightenment thinker. And that leads to the second point. Montesquieu, a lot of the other people in the Enlightenment who really influenced the founders were themselves enamored of the ancient world, uh, inspired by the ancient Greeks and especially the ancient Romans. That is what they looked to. That's what the political vocabulary came from. And that's where they took their lessons. The biggest lesson for the founders was not something that happened in England, not something that happened in France. It was the fall of the Roman Republic. That's what they worried about. And the lesson they drew from that was the Roman Republic fell because of faction. And this leads them down a whole road. Fear of faction. John Adams especially is terrified of faction. They think it undermines stability. They think it is the road to treason. And so, because they fear faction, they also fear the emergence of political parties. And they fight them ferociously. The, the Federalists around Adams uh, fight the notion of parties ferociously. And James Madison, little Jimmy Madison, to his credit, comes along and says, you know what, fellas? You guys are wasting a lot of energy fighting political parties, the emergence of parties. It's a natural thing. And guess what? It's a good thing. If you allow parties to emerge, then you can balance interest between parties. You can have civilized um, confrontations between them. You can have 
people of one party, people of another party, and understand that sometimes you're going to have to make compromises between those two parties. I actually think that Madison plays the role in the 1790s that Washington played in the revolution. The person who saw the big strategic picture and having seen that big picture, figured out the solution of how to move forward. I I definitely want to get back to political parties and dangers of faction. But before we get too deeply into that, I think there's a lot of questions. Well, there's a question that I think a lot of people would ask just to start with. And it's sort of the I call it the so what question. That's the, the idea that, well, why does it matter? what a bunch of, you know, white guys who've been dead for a few hundred years thought about what America should be based on what, you know, a bunch of other white guys who've been dead for a few thousand years thought. And isn't America kind of what we decide it is and not what these, you know, small group of elite white men who've been dead forever would have wished? And I think that's an important question. And so I wanted to get your take on that. I think it's an excellent question and one that everybody should address. Uh, The reason it is of interest to us now is because we live in the house they designed. Now, we can change that house. We can build new rooms onto it. We can change, for example, who is allowed to vote so that women and people of color have the vote, which they didn't back then. But we also need to understand why they did what they did, and we need to see the mistakes they made and try not to repeat them. I'm not saying these ancient old white men uh, of the American Revolution were always right. They were badly wrong about some things, uh, uh, faction being one of them, political parties. The thing they were most wrong about, about, though, was slavery. They wrote slavery into the Constitution. It says slavery, black people, are three-fifths of a person. Think of that. Our fundamental law defined black people as a lesser group. And this is a problem that they did not solve. They kicked the can down the road because they wanted to hold the country together. Georgia and South Carolina said at the Constitutional Convention, if there is a whiff of abolishing slavery here, we'll walk. And that leads to fear of faction. But also, if Georgia and South Carolina left, that would give Britain a foothold in North America. And you'd see the British and the French contending over these little states and having allies there. And that led to the prospect of another war with Europeans following the American Revolution or even all the states breaking up into simple allies of European countries, mainly France, England, and Spain. So we need to see the mistakes they made to understand how we got where we are today. If you don't know where you've been, you're not going to know where you are. The biggest mistake these guys made was slavery, and it leads directly to the Civil War. And the Civil War is the most important event in American history. I think we are still in the, in the reconstructive era after the Civil War right now. Wow. Yeah, I, I definitely want to focus in on that because it's pretty clearly, well, obviously very important that you argue in the book that the founders were wrong on those three issues. We Well, we talked about two of them already to a certain extent, uh, human bondage, the slavery issue, party politics, the dangers of faction. And uh, the other one we haven't gotten to yet is, is public virtue. Before we get to public virtue, I, I want to 
maybe, I don't know exactly, push back exactly, but it seems to me you can make an argument that on party on, on parties, on factions, and on public virtue, they were just wrong. But the slavery issue is maybe different because, as you sort of outlined, it was more them sort of maybe, I guess this is the, po- the, the, the strongest possible positive spin, is they, they felt they needed to make an awful compromise just to even have a country to deal with that at some point. Does, does, that, distinction, does that distinction make sense to you, or, or am I maybe uh, pushing that too hard? No, I think you're you're absolutely right. To hold the country together, they made a deal with the devil. Uh, There's a a historical uh, school that I think is correct that says the Constitution is best understood as a peace treaty between small nations, these individual states. It brings them together. It cuts deals between them. But it comes back to that awful fact, as you say, that slavery is not a stain on the American nation, it was woven into the fabric of the American nation. We still have not really come to grips with that. Uh, We began in our foundational document defining black people as second-class citizens. And there's a lot of people in this country who still don't understand what that means and how it lives with us even today. Now, on party politics or on factions, it, it seems to me, if, if I understand what you were saying a little earlier, is that while a number of the founders were wrong on that, the sense is that maybe Madison had a slightly different view and was less wrong. And I was wondering if you could sort of expand, talk a little bit about the, the founders' view uh, on party politics and how Madison maybe was a little bit different on that. Sure. Madison and uh, his early pal, Hamilton, later they're not family. Madison and Hamilton are really of a different generation than the older guys, Washington and Adams, um, and the people around them. Washington and Adams are really wedded to this Roman view of the world, the importance of virtue, which basically meant public-mindedness, putting the public good before your own self-interest. And Madison comes along, a younger man, and says, you know, this is simply not working. You people have to try something different. And John Adams spends the entire 1790s fighting that basic idea that virtue is not enough, that political parties are good ways to run a country, that if you can't have virtue, then you can balance vice with other vice. You can balance self-interest with other self-interest. This is Madison's great insight. And I think it's one reason that Madison and Jefferson, political allies, prevail and run the country uh, well into the early 19th century. Uh, The amazing thing to me about John Adams is I think he's so overrated these days, partly because of that very rosy biography by David McCullough. John Adams was a disaster as president. He didn't understand what was going on. He went home in a sulk one time for seven months, basically leaving the country to run itself. Uh, He really did not know what was going on about him. He took all criticism as a form of treason and put in jail dozens of newspaper editors simply because they criticized him. Yeah, I, well, John, I, I, when I read that, I sort of, well, I wouldn't say I bristled exactly because I sort of have to agree. He's one of my favorite founders. Uh, and I should point out, and you pointed out in the book, he's the only one of the four founders you focus on who wasn't actually a slave owner. Um, 
But it's always seemed to me that Adams was much better sort of in opposition to power than actually in power, if that makes sense. Yeah, some people are natural oppositionists. Uh, Newt Gingrich would be another example. They are good at opposition. Um, Donald Trump, even as president, is in opposition to the entire government and even to the concept of having a competent president and the the notion that you need a president to do things. that said, I think Adams, and I actually think Jefferson's reputation has been overplayed. Uh, a lot of Jefferson really doesn't stand up to close examination, except for the wonderful exception of the Declaration of Independence. What I love about the Declaration is that it almost saves the founders. They make this awful deal on slavery, yet they also give us the Declaration, which becomes a statement of national aspirations. The Declaration of Independence is not really about who we are, but who we want to be. And the belief that all men are created equal, the single most important phrase in any American historical document, that becomes the shining light, not that our nation is, but that tries to be. And it's a phrase that comes back astonishingly often when the women's um, liberation movement the women's suffrage movement begins in the 19th century. They point to that phrase. They say, we believe all people are created equal. When Lincoln gives the Gettysburg Address, he goes back to that phrase that this country was founded on the principle that all men are created equal. And then when Martin Luther King, 100 years after Gettysburg, gives his I Have a Dream speech in Washington in front of the Lincoln Memorial, again he says, we are a nation built on the concept that all men, all men are created equal. And then actually the gay liberation movement, Harvey Milk, begins by citing that phrase again. So for me, that almost balances the bad side of the ledger for Thomas Jefferson. Let's pull back just a little bit and talk about, maybe more specifically, about some of those influences. You've you've done, gosh, you've done a ton of research for this, and you've read very, very widely. And so I was wondering... In all of that research, were there any specific Greek and Roman or Roman sources that sort of stood out as being real touchstones for for the founders? Yeah, Plutarch's Lives um, comes back again and again. It's it's a document, you know, this sort of series of of capsule biographies. Uh, It comes back constantly in their conversations. It was a touchstone for them, a constant point of reference. The thing that struck me most about the ancient world was it was a different ancient world than the one we have. They looked to Rome in the foreground. Greek was, Greece was far in the background to them. Uh, and when they looked to Greece, they looked more to Sparta than to Athens. Um, Sparta was the republic they really admired. Samuel Adams uh, says it's like the, really the height of human organization. Alexander Hamilton talks about it at, at another point in the Federalist. Uh, they, they, the Romans and the Greeks they read were different. They read Terence, was the dramatist they read most. Uh, Terence is a comic Roman playwright nobody reads nowadays. Uh, by contrast, they didn't really read the ancient Greek tragedians, the dramatist Sophocles, Euripides, and so on. Um, those were seen as kind of obscure and really weren't on their radar screens except for Thomas Jefferson, who liked and read Euripides frequently. The Greek 
uh, dramatists really don't become part of the picture until the 19th century, when the German academics, uh, influenced by the Romantic movement of the 19th century, start uh, elevating Greece um, relative to Rome. And that's actually when you get Greek revival, a, a, um, a way of looking at, at how to build buildings, a way of thinking about freedom and about politics. It, it really strikes me uh, in reading your book and other things I've read about uh, about the era is uh, a couple of a couple of things, and maybe this gets back to some of my biases. But certainly, uh, Cicero seemed to have a quite a, a high reputation, as well as the uh, sort of stoic exemplar Cato. There was a, a play, I believe, it was Addison, right, of a play on Cato that even regular soldiers were at least some were somewhat familiar with, which strikes me as just being so remote from, you know, our, our knowledge of these figures today? Good point. Uh, Cicero is central uh, to them. He really is the premier political leader they all look to. They all want to be like Cicero, the eloquent speaker, especially John Adams. Um, and by contrast, Julius Caesar is the demon that they don't want to be, the general who takes over the political system. Um, and does away with the Republic. Uh, and, yes, and you mentioned Cato, uh, a, an important figure for them, the embodiment of what you want to be uh, as a public figure. If you want to understand George Washington, you have to understand Cato and the place he held in colonial American society, especially among the elites. They saw Cato as embodying everything the public figure should be. So. George Washington tries to be prudent, just, restrained, um, simple in his habits, uh, very much imitating Cato. Uh, it's interesting, though, that Cato winds up killing himself, uh, which they don't talk about much. But he did so uh, in, because he believed so deeply in, his, in freedom that rather than surrender to Julius Caesar, who was victorious against him in battle, he would prefer to kill himself. And to them, that becomes not a oh, well, he committed suicide, it's he chose freedom um, rather, rather than subjugation. Give me liberty or give me death, as Patrick Henry said, is an allusion to what Cato says in that and I guess that gets back to that, that point about public virtue, is that George Washington did a pretty exemplary job of, of conforming his life to that model, but it turned out very quickly that we were going to have a lot more presidents and public leaders like Adams and Jefferson, who, while great men, were certainly conflicted and less virtuous in that sense. And so I guess that that's what I, I took away from that, is that if we, we, we simply don't have enough George Washingtons and we have a lot more, well, Adams, Jeffersons, and so on. Yeah, I think Washington is a unique figure created in the crucible of a new society emerging. Um, he It's such a, an unusual time in history when elites in America, these rich guys uh, like Washington and Jefferson, turn against the system that birthed them and, and, and raised them and say, no, we are going to fight the British system. It's kind of a, such an unusual time. Uh, I think also people generally are made by events. I think Washington was made by the events of the revolution that he, in another time, he would have just ambled along like one of the bachelors in the background of a Jane Austen novel. 
Thomas Jefferson, similarly, I think, was made by the events, just as later on. I believe Abraham Lincoln was made by the event of the Civil War, and uh, Franklin Roosevelt achieved greatness because he led the country through our biggest war ever. So Washington is sort of that, uh, well, that 18th century version of a Cincinnati figure. He comes off the farm and leads the country and does his job and, and that sort of thing. Another classical illusion, which I think the framers certainly would have been well, well, well cognizant of. And they saluted Washington precisely for following the classical example. Um, they knew what he was doing when he finished the war, took off his military uniform and went back to his farm. They said that is exactly what a great man does. Uh, and that's really why uh, he uh, was so, uh, I think, loved and admired in early America. One of the most striking days in American history is when Washington dies um, after stepping down from the presidency in the mid-1790s. And, and the nation really feels lost for a moment. What are we going to do without Washington? They were right to be concerned. Washington had really held the country together through his personal um, reputation and his personal powers. And when Washington died, the Federalists really had nothing to offer. So you've got John Adams as president saying, well, we're the party of Washington, but we're not sure what that means. And Jefferson and Madison come along and basically wipe out the Federalist Party in a decade or two. It exists in the judiciary because judges stick around, as we're about to find out with Trump's Supreme Court. But um, the Federalists really, the only thing they had to offer for a long time was Washington. But then when he's gone, they had nothing. And then the political system really does emerge in the first three or four decades of the 19th century. And I think it's worked quite well, um, not always cleanly. Uh, it recognizes money. And I think money has become more important in politics steadily. Right now, I think money dominates our politics in a way that the founding fathers would be horrified by. Uh, they would see corporate contributions, campaign finance, as the worst sort of corruption. So when people talk about a conservative Supreme Court, a conservative Supreme Court would get corporations out of American politics. You know, one thing that struck me about, I should mention in the book, you focus on four founders in particular. It's Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and Madison. And of course, that's the first four presidents. It made me wonder if you think that in addition to that, which is kind of a nice, sort of a nice way to frame this, do you feel like there's a big drop off in importance between those four and say, founders like Franklin or Hamilton and, and such? That's a good question. One I hadn't really considered. Um, I would say Hamilton is important, is important, not as important as the musical makes him, but an important figure. Um, Franklin is really an earlier generation. It's only because he lived a very long time that he lives into the, the period of the Constitution. Hamilton and Madison combined were younger than Franklin during the writing of the Constitution. And Franklin, I'm not sure, really had that much influence at that point. It's funny you should mention him, though, because my original notion was to begin with him. And I went down to see one of the great American historians, Gordon Wood, who taught at uh, Brown University in Rhode Island, kind of explained to him what I was thinking about. And he nodded and nodded over lunch and then said, OK, but um, drop Franklin. Um, 
and add, add Madison at the end. So you have your four still. He said, but Franklin is really just another generation, another, uh, and is not part of the historical crisis that you're going to explore in your book. It was a great piece of advice, and I think saved me about six months of work. <laughs> yeah. Well, and one other thing that interests me is that George Washington, who's clearly the colossus of this group, was by far the least formally educated uh, of our of our founders. And I, I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about that and how perhaps his lack of education, at least, you know, comparatively, uh, how that maybe influenced him and his thinking. I think it did in a way that he was so conscious that he was not well-educated. And I think he became much better at observing, thinking, and reflecting than some of his peers were. He, he was not as smart or as well-educated as John Adams, but he had a lot more wisdom. I think Washington, underneath that cloak of Cato, was a real empiricist, somebody who really could study reality, think about it, make decisions about it, and act on those decisions. By the way, that's also a good description of what a good military commander does. And I think that especially the experience of defeat in the French and Indian War in the 1750s really prepared him. He'd had, a, he'd, as a subordinate officer, he'd been badly defeated in the French and Indian War. He had 20 years to think about it. And remember, he was a politician long before he was a general serving in the colonial Virginia House of Burgesses. Then he becomes a general, and he's a relatively young general when he becomes the first member of the U.S. Army and then the commander of the army he builds. He starts at the age of 44, which is pretty young, and young enough to learn and adjust. And he has a lousy couple of first years, 1775, 1776, in command. He goes in as a rather conventional military thinker, very similar to the British officers he was facing. And he finds out pretty quickly, this ain't working. Um, he gets his butt kicked across Manhattan, gets, gets kicked out of New York, gets chased across New Jersey. By the end of 1776, he's begin thinking, we might lose this thing. And he quietly is thinking about maybe he can escape out to Ohio and live out, live out his life there, get, you know, because Ohio is not part of these United States at that point. Uh, so I think he learns a lot and he adjusts. And this is actually something that intrigued me because I think historians have really dropped the ball on Washington as a general. And this is where my years of covering the military and covering wars really helped. Um, kind of seeing Washington through the lens of war, seeing him change and adjust and go from being a conventional military thinker to one who says, you know, I don't have to beat the British. I just have to keep my army alive. I'm not going to fight them in big battles. I'm going to avoid them when I can. What I'm going to do is move my army around and wear out the other guy. He finds that the militias, sort of like the National Guard of the day, the, the local soldiers, are very bad at big battles. They they're terrified, and rightly so, when the British do bayonet charges. But they're very good fighters when they're around their homes and villages, fighting them on familiar dirt roads and forests and hills and able to slip back occasionally to their farms and take care of their farms. And he uses those militias to nibble away at the British. The British win in New York City in 1776 and kick Washington out. But in the subsequent six months, 1776 into 1777, 
the militias in New Jersey nibble away at them, trying to chase Washington. And the British force is cut in half in those six months, simply through desertion, losing prisoners of of war, and seriously ill. Uh, And basically the day-to-day friction of skirmishing with militias. They lose one soldier today, two tomorrow, ten the next day in an ambush. And the militias were very good at this. At one point, uh, the British were looking for food a lot in their foraging, moving around New Jersey. At one point, the militia puts out a herd of cattle and makes that the um, (laughs) prize that the British come Mm -hmm. after. When the British go and try to get the cattle, they're ambushed by the uh, New Jersey militia. Sort of, it, it sort of it sounds very much like the the handbook for sort of unconventional asymmetrical warfare that we've seen in you know in Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan and so forth. Basically, it does, but it reminds the Americans of the time of a similar other war, which is the Roman general Fabius, who, when he was faced by Hannibal invading Italy, Fabius conducts a war in which he, f- he refuses to give battle. He hides in the hills where Hannibal's cavalry, they c- Hannibal is the Carthaginian general from Carthage across the Mediterranean, what is now North Africa. Uh, and he fights, Washington imitates this, fights a Fabian war. He's not a natural Fabian. He kind of resisted a lot, but it really is what allows him to prevail. He realizes that as long as he fights in a Fabian way, the British can't win. If the British can't win, eventually they're going to get sick and go home and lose. And so he is saluted. Oh, that was the last sort of Roman role, or one of his last Roman roles. Washington uh, is Cincinnati, is Cato at one point, but he also becomes Fabius, fighting a Fabian way of war. Uh, and is saluted as such, not only by Americans, but by the French allies who call him the American Fabius. So do you think in a way that maybe uh, Washington compared to, say, Adams or Jefferson, both of whom I think would have probably made pretty awful field commanders, or the, the advantage being that he could he learned from reality, he was on the ground, and that influenced his not just his military thinking, but his political thinking, whereas maybe you know, some people would say, well, see, that's what happens. Elites have too much of that, of that fancy book learning, and, and there you go. They can't adjust to events on the, on the ground as they unfold. I think he did a bit of Washington, but he was aged by the war. He wasn't an old man when the war ended, but he looked and acted like one at Newburgh, uh, his last camp uh, as a British commander up on the Hudson River outside of New York City. Uh, In Newburgh, at one point, he's confronted by mutinous officers, and he takes off his glasses and he puts on his glasses and says, excuse me, I have gone almost blind in the service of my country. He begins talking and acting like an old man, and this is even before he's president. I don't think his presidency was so good. He really, I think, left a lot of it to Hamilton and uh, a lot of it also to Madison, partly because Jefferson was out of the country, and so Madison didn't have anybody to hang out with and play with on politics. Uh, Though he still continues with his inquiring mind, one of the things that impressed me a lot about Washington is when he goes into retirement finally after his presidency, goes back to Mount Vernon, he begins reading about abolition, about getting rid of slavery in political pamphlets. And of the slaveholding presidents, Madison, Jefferson, and Washington, 
he's the only one that I could find who really showed an interest in abolishing slavery. And, you know, Ed, you mentioned uh, Madison. I want to focus on him because going back to an earlier comment you made about why we should care about what these founders thought and what their influences were. And you said that, you know, they they essentially built the house that we live in. And I think of all these builders, you know, James Madison, often called the father of the Constitution. And if you're going to pick, you know, a single person to be the most important influence over that, that structure of that Constitution, most I, I think most people would say, well, James Madison. So I want to specifically focus in on him. What who in antiquity did Madison look to and how do we see those influences in his political thought and the constitutional system that came out of it? When I wrote this book, uh, the big surprise to me was how much my opinions of Adam, Adams and Jefferson went down in my opinions of Washington and Madison went up. I think the problem with Madison for us dealing with him and for me as a writer is Adams really, as you say, had an extraordinary influence on the country. In many ways, the most important of the founders from the Constitution on. Yet, for reasons I don't understand, he was not a memorable writer. He was a memorable thinker. Yet, we, there are almost no phrases we associate with Madison in the way we do with, say, Jefferson. Um, but Jimmy Madison, this small guy, maybe 5'2", barely over 100 pounds, a very small voice, not impressive physically, not an impressive speaker, had such an influence in that period from the writing of the Constitution to getting the Constitution passed, which was certain, not a certainty in any way. He runs the, the campaign to get the states to ratify the Constitution. Then he goes on and forms, helps form political parties. And then he's Secretary of State, and then he's President. It's quite a track record. But I think what influenced Madison more than anything else was Montesquieu. Now you say, well, you're talking about classical thinkers. Montesquieu's a French Enlightenment. But look at what Montesquieu was writing about. He wrote extraordinarily about the Roman Empire, not just a book on the Roman Republic and its fall, but his most famous book, The Spirit of Laws. Um, Montesquieu uh, is, dwells in, in a good part of it. I think the, almost the whole first third is about Roman history and Roman law. So Madison gets a lot of his political thinking from Montesquieu, and the great polit British political writer, Sir Isaiah Berlin, said that basically Montesquieu invented the modern liberal state. So the role that Madison played uh, for the United States, uh, his, his mentor, Montesquieu, basically did for the entire West, creates the liberal state. It's based on balancing liberty and freedom. It's based on political tolerance, based on a, a sense of com working for the common good um, and moving your nation forward. Uh, really, this is the classic Western liberal state, and it comes directly from Montesquieu. At the end of your book, you discuss, you have a list of 10 things that you feel that we, you think we can do as a country to kind of put us more on the path that that revolutionary founding generation intended. And I think, well, I don't think I know my favorite might be uh, the first one is the first one. And that's don't panic. And, and I love that. And I was hoping you could explain that. Well, <laughs> I hope we can get through the next six days. We're <laughs> talking right, right now. We're talking just before the, uh, not election. quite a week yet before the election day. Yep. Um, one thing that is striking when you look at it is 
yes, the country these guys designed has faults, and they designed some of those flaws into it. But the system has survived for more than 250 years, and it's very impressive that it's done so. There was no guarantee that this country would hold together. And in fact, the South tried to take it apart once. And the country has a lot of stresses pulling it apart. Yet, here we are, centuries after these guys designed it, and here it is. Why is it still here? Well, a lot of it has to do with the way Madison and his colleagues designed it and worked it to balance interest, checks and balances. These are serious things. A check in in hockey is a serious stopping of someone else. So it is in politics, too. I think Jimmy Madison would say that gridlock is not a fault. It's a feature. It's designed into the system. When you guys can't agree, he was saying, then the system should stop working. It should force you to compromise or come to a, come to a, a standstill. And that's kind of where we're at, is he dispersed power all over the place and said, if you want to do things in this country, you have to pull power together, and you're going to have to do that by persuading people. Well, our politics of the last 50 years have been built on dividing people. Uh, if you really wanted to unite the country, you wouldn't have the Supreme Court you have now. The Supreme Court we have, which is conservative six, liberal or centrist three, is way out of whack with the, where this country is. Yet it is part of what Madison designed, which is I'm going to disperse power between the three branches of the federal government. I'm going to have two branches of legislature so that they will check and balance each other. And I'm going to have power divided between the states and the federal government. Uh, it really was a kind of extraordinary gamble to say, yes, this country is this brawling big country on, on this, it's going to grow across a continent, yet we are going to disperse power all over the place. In order to get anything done, you're going to have to be persuasive. Do you think that, that the founders would have been surprised at how little the Constitution has changed? I mean, certainly they were writing in a very different, right, uh, pre-industrial world. And and sometimes I wonder, I hear arguments all the time about, well, that would require a constitutional amendment, so that's just not a thing we should even consider, basically. But did you get the sense from their influences and from all all that you've read and thought about them that they would kind of expected this much stasis? Or do you think they would have expected us to revise and, you know, make additions and renovations to the house that they built? Well, remember, they designed it to have uh, additions and revisions. They call them amendments. And there are a lot of amendments, beginning with the Bill of Rights. And it was actually one of the arguments made during the ratification debates, which is, look, you can change this thing. And it's designed to be amended, which is to say to to be made better, to be fixed. And so if you don't like it, don't reject it, pass it, it'll hold the country together, and then we can start making changes to it. And we have done that periodically. Uh, Where this country goes wrong is when the minority says, we don't like it, and we're going to fight you. And the worst instance of that was when the South, a minority in the country, recognizing that slavery was doomed under the system, decided to fight a war to save slavery. One other thing you mentioned, one of these 10 changes, and it's really caught my attention because it's something um, one of my co-hosts, Jay, and I talk about on the show all the time. Uh, so wake up Congress. And I wanted to get your, your take on in what sense you think Congress needs to be 
woken up. What you mean by that? I'm not a fan of Bernie Sanders generally. But one line of his did really stick with me, that Congress is supposed to regulate Wall Street, but these days Wall Street regulates Congress. And I think that's right. I don't think we live in a full democracy anymore. And in retrospect, I wish I'd made this point in the end of the book. I think we live in an oligarchy. Uh, it is an oligarchy with the trappings of democracy, but basically it is a country run for the rich by, and by the rich. And intelligently run oligarchies preserve the trappings of democracy. And I think Congress increasingly has the trappings of democracy, but has been operating like a, a wing of the oligarchy. Money is more important than votes in this country today. Rich people are running this country for their own ends. And that's not always been true. And I think to wake up Congress, the people are going to have to regain control of the Congress. And that means changing campaign finance so rich people can't decide who gets elected. I think it's a real problem. And here it takes me back to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said the corporations are people, which is a crazy thing. And then said, and as, people, as corporations can make uh, campaign do donations as they like. And so basically, Congress becomes a subsidiary of rich people in America. And I think that's a very bad, sick situation. The founders would be shocked by And And certainly that's not an optimistic note to end on. I don't want to end on, if we can avoid any other pessimistic note, I'd like to. So let me ask you this. How optimistic are you that we can, if not fully return to sort of the vision of, of the founders, at least the best elements of it, how optimistic are you that we can return to at least a track that might lead us to that? I'd say uh, the democracy uh, has a 50-50 chance of surviving in this country and going down. The chances are going down steadily. Not optimistic, but I think that's where we're at. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm sure I, I, I join you in saying we hope you're. I hope you're wrong. I know you hope you're wrong about that. And uh, certainly, by the time by the time this episode airs, folks will heard the results of the of the 2020 elections, and that will certainly be a play a major role, at least some role in that. But uh, until then, I just want to say thank you, Thomas Ricks. It was a, a fascinating book. It's been a pleasure getting the opportunity to talk with you, and I really appreciate you taking the time. You're welcome. That's it for today's show. We hope you like what you heard. If you'd like a second full-length Politics Guys episode every single week, as opposed to just these occasional interviews, you can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. Supporters also get ad-free versions of every episode, as well as other good stuff. To get the details and to become a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you can't afford to become a supporter, to email me at mike at politicsguys.com and I will get you full access to that second episode every single week. And if being a monthly supporter is too much of a commitment, but you still like to help us out occasionally, you can do that too through PayPal. You'll find the link on our website, politicsguys.com slash support. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, that is a big help as well as leaving ratings and reviews and especially sharing your favorite episodes on social media. That's a big deal to us. 
And if you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, or whatever, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. For more great discussions, check out our bipartisan politics subreddit. You'll find the URL in the show notes. We've also got a Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.